the Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is going to be the first in several messages that we're entitling, The Hour is Come. The Hour is Come. And this first message in this series is going to deal with praying in difficult moments or praying in difficult times. In John chapter 17, beginning with verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Praying in difficult moments. Now the Gospel of John was written to provide readers with evidences that demonstrate Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, at the end of chapter 20, John says in verse 30, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Of all the different accounts of Jesus' teaching and healing. John specifically selected these because he believed they would lead a person to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. I believe that all the Gospels are worthwhile reading, and every one of them are important, inspired, infallible, inerrant. But John tells you specifically that this was put together so that the reader, by the time he goes from chapter 1 to the end of the book, he'd be able to recognize that Jesus is the Savior. There's nothing in the Bible that would ever lead you to believe that Jesus was not a person of prayer. He did pray. Mark chapter 1 says that he went out to pray early in the morning in a place all by himself. That tells me that prayer is important and prayer should be a vital part of your Christian life. If you've got a large enough residence, you can go out in your yard and walk around with a Bible and just meditate. You can drive out in the country, walk along the river, out on the country road. You can sit in your chair in your home and just spend time in meditation on the word of God. But everyone should have a prayer life. Just you and God, private time. He talks to you, you talk to him. Scripture says in Luke chapter 6, Jesus went out and he prayed all night and afterwards he chose his disciples. That means that before any major decision, we should pray. Before we do anything of any significance, of any importance, we should not be unwise about the will of God. We should pray, ask God about it. It's not enough to simply say, what is it that you want to do? But Lord, what would you have me do? I've said to many graduates when they leave high school, the thing that you should have been asking is not what kind of plan have I designed for my life, but what is it that you believe God wants you to do? And you have to start asking that early. God, what is it that you want me to do? What is there in your will that I can do? And the moment we become Christians, the Bible says our life is hid in Christ. We become Christians. God begins to unfold to us our life, our ministry, our career. And as God reveals it, we walk in that path. But it's preceded by prayer. Jesus was a person 
that prayed. John 17 is the longest prayer of our Lord and Savior in the Bible. Longest prayer of Jesus in Scripture. We're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But this is the one prayer of all of the things recorded in Scripture that takes you into the actual details of what Jesus prayed in private. So you have the content right here. John 17 gives us 26 verses of what Jesus said to his father, knowing that just up the road was a cross. What would you say to God if you were a few days, a few weeks, a few hours from death? Here's what Jesus said. He's praying for unity amongst his disciples. He's praying for future generations of believers to come. He's praying that the father would glorify him so that he can in turn glorify the father. That's how he's praying. But most of us, when we're facing a difficult time, I cannot say that we oftentimes pray like that. Our prayers generally are pretty self-centered. They revolve around our needs, our pains, our problems. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus prayed in different ways. There is a story in Matthew 26 where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And the Bible says that in verse 39, he went a little farther, fell on his face and prayed. Jesus fell prostrate in the presence of God. Matthew 26, 39. There's nothing wrong with praying on your knees. Some people pray better when they're on their belly. Some people enjoy praying as they're walking. Some people enjoy praying as they're sitting. The thing is, Jesus' posture was not always in one particular mode or style. John chapter 11 says that when Lazarus was dying, they told Jesus about it. Jesus hesitated for several days. And when he got there, Lazarus had been dead for at least four. And Lazarus was the one that Jesus loved, the Bible says. Jesus gets there. He said, let's go over there to the sepulcher. Gets to the sepulcher. He said, roll away the stone. He said, Lord, if we take away the stone by now, he stinks. And that body decomposing, that stench is going to come out. Jesus said, roll away the stone. They rolled away the stone. The Bible says Jesus lifted his eyes toward his father, groaned in the spirit and said, Lord, I thank you that you have heard me. When in the world did he even say anything? Obviously, God was able to either read his heart or he uttered or mumbled something in a low enough breath or whisper that other people didn't hear. But I do know this. He lifted his eyes toward heaven. So you can pray with your eyes open. There's nothing that says that every time you pray in order to be holy and reverent, you've got to drop your head and bow, bow it and close your eyes. You can. That's not a problem at all. But you don't get any special points with God, whether you do it or don't do it. But you do need to know he wants us to pray, to talk with him. And John goes out of his way to record one of the final discourses or teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples. And they start in chapter 14. He lets them know that he must depart. Jesus said, if I don't leave, the spirit of God won't come. This thing won't get any bigger if I don't leave. Now, I'll be honest with you. It's not easy to let people go that you love. And I've seen a lot of people that have been married for 50 and 60 years. I watched them as they've stood by the bedside of people that they love so much or daughters standing by the bedside of parents or son with their parents or somebody losing a nephew or son or somebody 
and it's hard to let them go. It's not easy to say goodbye to mom when you've had mom with you for 50 years, 60 years. Very difficult to put a child in the ground when you always expect the child to to put you in the ground, and you're going to precede the child in death. But Jesus says to the disciples, it is important for you that I depart, because if I don't depart, the comforter won't come. It's hard for them to grasp that. He's been healing the sick, casting out devils, teaching people, giving them power to preach the kingdom of God around Israel. And how difficult it had to have been to hear him say, you can't go with me where I'm going just yet. And Jesus speaks to them about the role of the Holy Spirit. He will come to comfort you in the midst of my absence. and He will make it seem as though I am right here with you because the Spirit of God will be my spirit coming to dwell with you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, the triune Godhead. I'll be gone. Physically, I will not be here with you, but the Spirit of God will here to take that place in your heart so that you will sense my presence. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comforts the heart. He ministers to the one that loses a loved one, and that broken heart is then mended because the Spirit of God works to put it back together again. Maybe you've passed through some periods where you have lost people that you've loved and you've cried so much that your tears became your own bread, but yet the Spirit of God brought you through that valley. That's how He is. When you think God's not there, you'll find out that the Lord is right there with you in the middle of everything. Children of Israel found that out with God. The disciples found that out on the mountain of Olives. Jesus went to heaven. A few days later, the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost. They went everywhere preaching Christ. They knew that Jesus was with them. But Jesus also told them in chapter 16, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me. Now, if you're going to be a Christian, In this world that we live in, where there's sin and where there's a devil, you're going to have to expect expect that there'll be people that won't like you. There'll be people that don't care anything about the name of Jesus and don't care anything about Christianity. And some people will despise you just because you're attached to Jesus Christ. There are people in this world, they don't have a problem with the word God, but they have a problem with the word Jesus. And the ones that tell you they don't have a problem with the word Jesus won't have a problem with it until you tell them that Jesus died on the cross in their place for their sins. Because now the implication is I'm a sinner and I wasn't born right the first time. Well, that's what he's saying. You must be born again. We live in a world right now that is confused. I saw on television the other day where they had teachers in a classroom of junior high students teaching the young men how to put on prophylactics in a public school. But yet here in this nation, there is such iniquity that we don't know the difference. We celebrate now the passage of a man into womanhood or a woman into manhood, the whole trans gender thing when as I explained to my wife we can take or anyone can take as many hormone pills as they want have as many operations as they want but it will never change their DNA you're born a man you're a man you're born a woman 
You're a woman. It'll never change no matter how many pills or shots anybody takes. And, and the confusion today is so rampant that if you're a Christian and don't accept it, they label you a bigot, intolerant, narrow-minded. I think as a Christian, we should hold to what Jesus said. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But since you're not of the world, they're not even concerned about you. They want to shove you off to the side. Well, John had a very good picture of this. And this is why Jesus is able to talk about the difficulties that come upon himself and his believers. And at the end of chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus says, the hour has come and now is that you'll be scattered every man to his own and you'll leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the father is with me. What hour? The hour of travail. John 16, verse 21, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. So God sees that from the time of Adam and Eve with the sin that came into this world connected with childbirth was the, the pain that attends it physically. Jesus says in John 16, 21, that that travail is only for a season and that travail is called the hour. That God predetermined a specific period of time in which a mother would carry that child in the womb. And then at the during the processes of birth, that pain for a season would then be superseded by the joy of holding the child in her hands. And Jesus said the hour. Is come in verse 32. He said, you'll be scattered. Now, if your hour isn't come, your hour will come. If your hour isn't here now, your hour will come. All of us pass through our own tests, our own trials, our individual tribulations. Your tests will be tailor-made for you. Mine will be tailor-made for me. But the answer is, how will we handle it? What are we going to do with Christ? Scripture says in verse 32, he said to his disciples, you'll be scattered. Mark 14 says that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the crowd came to get him, that, that all of his disciples fled from him. What could be more heartbreaking than your closest friends leaving you when you need them the most? Folks, I tell you, it's a, it's a terrible time to have to do things on your own without the aid and assistance of anybody. Especially when you have friends. It's a very terrible thing to pass through a valley of the shadow of death and find that your hour is coming. The devil is fighting you on every hand and you don't have anybody to stand there with you. It says here you will all be scattered. Now, under what circumstances would you leave Jesus? Could I create some kind of a hypothetical circumstance? Could I describe some kind of scenario that would lead you to backslide or become offended at church people or at God? And you'll say, I'll never read my Bible again. I'll never listen to a preacher again. I'll never darken the door of a church again. I hope I can't create that kind of a situation. I'd like to think that in your heart of hearts, you'd be able to say that there's nothing that will cause me to run from God. But what did Peter say when Jesus said, Peter, 
The cock is going to crow three times and you're going to betray me. Oh, Lord, not me. Everybody else might run away from you, but I am here for the long run. Peter, that, that rooster is going to crow. And you're going to betray me. That's exactly what occurred. I hope and pray that your relationship with God is such that under no circumstances would you be scattered away from him. And I'd like to believe that all of us have a relationship that is knit to such degree that through the darkest and most difficult times, we could continue to pray together. A family that prays together, stays together, walks with God. But then Jesus said to his disciples, even though you leave me alone, you do need to know I'm not alone. We oftentimes think that we are by ourselves when in reality the Lord has not departed from us. And there are certain circumstances that lead us to consider psalms that are appropriate when we're in that hour of difficulty. Jesus is facing the cross. He's a few hours from death. He tells his disciples, now the period of my trial has come. I think that'd be a good time to pray Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means we're the sheep. The Lord's the lead sheep. He's leading us into places that we don't necessarily know how to get to. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. This is an agricultural area. We're familiar with goats and sheep and cows and pigs and things and horses and all of that. But you know as well as I do, out there in the green pastures, you're never going to get any kind of an animal to lay down and just sit there and chew the cud unless they have a sense of calm or peace about them. There's not an animal on this planet going to lay down and relax if they sense or believe that a predator is within the vicinity, you see. God is saying he will lead you to a place where you'll have such calm and assurance that you will have safety and security as he leads you by the still waters. That's in the midst of your hour when it has come. He says he restores your soul. Jesus said, my soul is very much troubled as he's making his way to Calvary. Sometimes trouble does that. It brings anguish. I don't know about you, but when I'm very, 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 very distressed, which doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, I have a hard time sleeping. You toss and you turn. That may not be anything that any of us like to say, but all of us have probably had one or two things in life that have kept us up at night. You wonder about somebody's future. You wonder about somebody's health. You wonder about finances. You wonder about where you're going, where you've come from. You wonder about something in your past. Will it show up? You wonder about something in your future. Will it ever appear? You're believing for it. God has to restore your soul over and over again as he's leading you down this path. Because the devil is doing what he can to attack you, to fight you. And the Bible says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord will be with you. That means that God doesn't forsake you when your hour has come. Our Heavenly Father did not turn his back on Jesus when the hour came. The hour of travail, the hour of temptation was right there inside of him, saying, greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. 
Then, of course, God is able to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies, the people that want to see you fail. Now, I'm sure you've all had at least one person somewhere along the line in your life that did not want to see you succeed. They wanted to see you go under. They didn't want to see you swim. They wanted to see you go under. But the Lord has a way of preparing the table and, and, and loading the table with all kinds of delicacies so that all the people that hate you get an opportunity to see the favor and the blessing of God that's on your life. And they can't do a thing about it because the shepherd stands guard. They can't even get to your blessing. So sometimes when your hour has come and it's a difficult time, you'll find that the Lord has goodness and mercy accompanying you in that trial period. This is why the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall in the different types of temptations. Because God is right there in the midst of it. Well then, if Jesus knows these things and says, I've spoken to you that you might have peace in verse 33, in a world where you're going to have tribulation, he can say, be of good cheer. He's able to say that because he knows that God is going to be with you in the various hours of tribulation that come. And it's not just one. The path that you're on, the path that I'm on, leads us through a variety of different circumstances. So how did Jesus pray? In chapter 17, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He had his mind on a heavenly father. That's the relationship, the father. He prayed like a man who wasn't alone. If you're not alone, don't pray like you're alone. Pray like you know God. Yeah. Pray like you know God. I've heard people say over and over again, live like everything depends on you, but pray like everything depends on God. See? That means be industrious, be diligent to do whatever you need to do to get ahead, to be successful. If you have to get to work before everybody else, get to work early. If you have to stay later than everybody else, stay later than everybody else. But when you pray, pray like it's all about him and his mighty outstretched arm and it's not about you. Jesus lift up his eyes to his father. and That is what he called him. That's a relationship. What kind of relationship do you have with God? Can you call him father because you're his child? Or do you call him father because you heard somebody else call him that? A lot of people in this world that have not had good father figures. But they still have to find a father in our heavenly father. Scripture says when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord takes you up. How many children in America were raised in foster care? Raised by adoptive parents. And then they grow up and they come to that point in life where they want to know who their parents were. Or they go back and forth from foster home to foster home because the, the, the foster parents are on drugs or the foster parents are abusing them or the foster parents have them only so they can receive state monies and things like that. But when it's all over, folks, I'm telling you, you a person can still find that our Heavenly Father will be with them in the most difficult hour. I've ministered to a lot of foster care people. Jesus said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify thee. What does that mean? Jesus is obviously asking for a glory that's different than the glory he has now. You say he has a glory as he's saying this? Yes, John 1.14 said, and we beheld his glory as that of the only begotten son of God. 
He had some kind of a glorious uh, aura or power or virtue that was about him. But this was different because he goes on to say, I want the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world, before there was an Adam and Eve, before there was an earth, before all of this had been created. When I sat upon the circles of the earth as a part of the triune Godhead, glorify me now and I'll give it right back to you. How do we glorify God? We tell the story of redemption. We tell the story of who he is. We spread his name. And by doing so, we make him glorious. Make him glorious. Tell folks about who the Lord is. Then you'll find that the Lord is made glorious in our midst. And no matter what the problem, Jesus supplies the need because he is the one who has received power from God to create sons of God. Just many that come to him has given him authority or power to become sons of God. So I think then that if you are facing a difficult hour right now, you're not facing it alone. And, and when you feel like you're alone, you're not alone. You've got somebody on your side. The person that's on your side is God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. So from Genesis to Revelation, you've got a manual here that speaks to you about how to face it. And Jesus shows us how to do that. He says, lift your eyes to the father. So the psalmist said, lift your eyes to the hills from what's cometh your help. Knowing that our help comes from God. Human people can only give you so much aid. Individuals in this world that live and die can only help you so far. But God can do for you things I never can do for you and things your neighbor can't do for you. God can open doors that your neighbor can't open. God can cause the heavens to rain down blessings even when other people don't quite understand it. That is how faithful God is. And he supplies our need no matter the difficulty. Jesus found this out with his relationship with God over and over again. The Lord made sure that he had the ability to supply the needs of those that labored with him. And the father supplied the needs of the son. And if God did that for his son, don't you think God's doing that for his other sons and daughters around the world? Throughout the history of the church, he's been faithful. And even right now, he's faithful. There was a couple that labored for more than 25 years as missionaries in China. Mr. and Mrs. James Andrews, they lived up in the Yunnan province of China, way up in the mountains where there were no other white faces anywhere around them. They'd been there for years. They'd only had maybe two furloughs during that time. They'd been there now for 10 years and they're preparing to go home on a furlough. But this is right during World War II. The Japanese are fighting against the Chinese, taking over everything. And this couple were packing their bags, ready to leave. And a letter came from some Christians in a nearby village. And the Christians in the Lisu district said, what are we to do? One of our brethren has been martyred. And the villagers will not let us bury him unless we give them grain and cattle and large sums of money. Mr. Andrews looked at that letter and his heart broke because he wondered how could we leave in the midst of all of this persecution of our brethren that we have led to Christ. 
The American and British consulates have told us to leave because they cannot guarantee our safety up here in these mountains. But he said to his wife, I feel led to stay. We can't forsake them in this very dark hour, this dark period of time. Well, they had had revival and a lot of the villages that came out on the Lord's side. So there were a number of folks that had come to know who the king was. They had a daughter named Ruth that was 11. Never been in American school, had a son that was named James that was nine, educated by the mother and the father. They weren't preachers per se. They went over there as missionaries. He wanted to teach them about carpentry and how to build homes and at the same time talk about the Lord. The wife wanted to do some medical things, but in the process, the churches were began. And to say that they were poor would be an exaggeration. It would be better to say they were impoverished. Husband only had one suit with patches in the elbows and in the seat of his pants. The wife was very embarrassed, but they didn't have any money to buy anything else. When they made the decision to stay, inflation took place. A pound of sugar went up to about 3,000 Chinese dollars. That would have been 30 American dollars back during World War II. That was a lot of money then. But over there in China, when you don't have any money, it's... It's a terrible thing. The little girl, Ruth, annually the mother would make candy during holiday time for her little daughter. But this particular time, she couldn't get any sugar, didn't have any money to buy. And she had to explain to her daughter that she couldn't make her any candy. And little Ruth, she cried out and she said, Mom, the kids in America get candy every day and I can't even get it once a year. It broke the mother's heart and the dad's heart that they couldn't even provide some basic candies once a year for the kids. She just said to her daughter, we're missionaries and you have to make sacrifices like we do. She had the little girl pray that God would provide what they needed. Well, meanwhile, in the middle of a cold month in January, the war is going on, planes are going back and forth all the time. There's a runner that comes to the missionary's house and says, I think you need to come up in these hills. We think there's somebody up there. And so sure enough, the man saddled his donkey, went a day and a half up into the mountains. And when he got there, three airmen had bailed out at upwards of 3,000 feet because of, I don't know if it was enemy air fire or they got diverted or whatever, but they bailed out. And when they landed, they landed in the trees. They had broken arms. They had broken legs. And that missionary had to take those three men, put them on the back of his mule, and hump it back a day and a half to get back to that house. You know that was a tough ride. Got back, nursed them, back to health. Army found out that they were there after they finally were able to send a messenger down to a, a village far, far away where there was somebody that could send word to the army headquarters. They sent an airplane, and they came up and got them, and the two Individuals on the airplane gave the missionary two parachutes made out of fine silk and nylon. That missionary wife was so happy. She looked at that, that material that that parachute was made out of, called a couple of other local families, and there she was able to make a dress and underclothes and a hat for her little 11-year-old daughter, she was able to make a shirt and underwear and pajamas for James and two shirts for her husband out of the nylon of that, that parachute. 
One day they were in the church service and they were worshiping God and they noticed that as a plane went over, it looked like something had dropped out. So they thought another man was coming out in a parachute. So the, the husband finished up the service, <clears throat> got on his mule, headed in the direction and came back. And when he got back, it had not been somebody that bailed out. It was a package, a big, huge crate sent down with a parachute. And the crate had a it was addressed to Mr. James Andrews. You know, they couldn't wait to open that up, opened it up. And sure enough, there were two new suits, one summer suit and one wool gray suit. And inside was a case of milk. Oh, my Lord, they're so happy. The, 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 the army discovering that there were two missionaries way up there in the mountains thought to themselves, this can be a strategic moment for us. We're losing a lot of planes. Let's set up a weather station 10 miles away from them up on the highest peak so that when our planes go back and forth, at least we'll be able to see. And since they're down there locally and know everybody, we'll have that kind of a relationship. So one time during the month of May, after the station was going, there was a note sent to the missionaries that said, Christmas in May, please bring 30 horses with you to carry loads of food back. Well, it was hard to even find 30 horses, but you better believe that missionary found them. And he took the 30 horses up there, came all the way back. And with all the food they had, got back and the wife was able to open it up. And there was a case of the best butter, a case of cheese. They hadn't had cheese in over a decade. There was evaporated milk, condensed milk, raisin, spam, chili, con carne, large fruit, large fruit juice tins, tins of peaches and apricots. They hadn't had any of this. But she said, more than anything else, I remember the lovely white flower. I hadn't seen white flower in so long. It looked so white to me. She said there were two cases of soap for washing clothes and 160 pounds of the best white granulated sugar you've ever seen in your life. And she said to top it off, there were two cases of candy. There was one case of chocolate and one of hard candy. My daughter's face beamed all over the place. And to think. God looked at a little girl that wept and cried because she couldn't have candy once a year. And because some airmen bailed out just over the vicinity of the missionaries, God was able to provide for a family what they needed. Folks, God cares so much for us that if he's got to rain the blessings down out of the sky, folks, he'll do it. Yeah, yeah. God can look at your, your hour of difficulty and your hour of trial, and no matter how difficult it is, he can still bring blessing to you. I mean, mercy, Yunnan province, up in the mountains, crates falling from the sky with your name on it. Makes me think of Elijah hiding out by the pond where the ravens were bringing them bread to eat. Our God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. According to his riches and glory. Don't ever limit God to what you can think about. That lady went on to say, I could have never imagined on my best day that God would have blessed us like that. She said for the 25 years previously, they had had so little, had been so poor. 
that in just a few months during a war when everybody else lacked everything else, God supplied more for them than anybody else had. Mercy. Let's stand. Isn't it good to serve a God like that?